Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. What if I told you that the former head of BMW in New Zealand now wants those gas-guzzling polluting cars off the road and replaced with low-emission electric vehicles like the mild-mannered Nissan Leaf? A few years ago, I wouldn't have believed it myself, but Mark is now the chairman of Drive Electric, a consortium of interests from across the transport sector. They say electrifying the vehicle fleet is one of the most effective ways to achieve our goal of being carbon neutral by 2050. Their ambition is to make electric vehicle ownership mainstream and have targeted 250,000 EVs on the road by 2025. Mark, welcome to this climate business. Thank you, Vincent. It's a pleasure to be here and thanks for having me. How many EVs are on the road now and how many cars in total do we have in New Zealand? Look, I have the, the, the data for 2020. I haven't sort of got my hands on in terms of the total fleet, but um, if my memory serves me right, there's probably yeah, getting close to 4 million in the light vehicles in the light fleet. It was about mm-hmm. 3.7 two or three years ago. It depends on how many are coming in and how many are sort of being scrapped out, but it's probably around that 3.8, I would imagine, million. Um, and when it comes to EVs, um, 23,000, so not many at all. Um, and that's really why we want to, um, I guess, just raise the topic um, because there is huge change coming. Um, and like my background, is, as you pointed out with BMW, um, it was, yes, all fossil fuel cars, but during that time we were, we were sort of leading I guess, the charge of reducing emissions with programs they called Efficient Dynamics at the time, which was sort of, you know, lower emitting vehicles. Um, you know, a lot of engineering work was going into it uh, with a view to, and I was involved a little bit in the the i3 program that was um, launched sort of shortly after I retired from the company. But you could see what's coming and you can um, see also what's happening in, in Europe where there's pretty draconian, um, fines if the companies, do, the, the OEMs, the producers of the vehicles, don't actually achieve the the mandated CO2 emissions. Mm. Um, I don't think any car company wants to try and pass those costs on to either their shareholder or their customer. Yeah. Well, we might come back to your journey to where you've got to now in a minute, but let's just keep talking about how New Zealand reaches these um, ambitious numbers. So what are the things that we have to do to reach that 250,000 vehicles? Because that's a big leap in four and a half years, less than four and a half years. Yeah, it is a big leap. And I think you've spent some time with Dr. Paul Winton, who we have been working with as well, um, Vincent. And look, it is ambitious. It's designed to be a headline and it's designed to get people talking. Um, it's not impossible, um, mm. but a number of things would need to, to happen. Um, and I think the first thing is getting the um, some more dialogue going on this topic around what does it mean. I mean, New Zealand's been bloody good over the years of vaporising people's wealth through 
um, things like leaky homes. Well, this could be another one because the motor vehicle is probably the second major purchase for a lot of people and in some instances possibly their, their major purchase. Well, I don't mm. think anyone wants to wake up in 2030, which isn't that far away, and suddenly find that because of actions in other part of the world, parts of the world, that they're finding it very difficult to um, sell their used fossil fuel vehicle. Or the flip of that is if we don't do anything, we end up um, getting heaps of the cars off the roads of the UK that just sort of end up coming through to New Zealand as used car imports, which would further delay any ability to meet the net carbon zero targets that you know we've all signed up for. Mm. So you've got two quite strong tensions there, haven't you, of a, a, a vehicle that we know ultimately is going mm. to be redundant, but also the, the need to transition, I suppose, people into a different kind of yeah. future. So so what are the steps that, that this has got to be a government and industry-led initiative, right? So what do you think yeah. are the building blocks that would make that transition happen? Look, we've um, for some time have been talking about the need for a um, better working group or a hui or whatever you want to call it, just a meeting of all interested uh, parties, stakeholders. But we need on this one a bipartisan solution, not a National Party solution, not a Labor Party solution, because this affects everybody. Or you know, it's, We're dealing about future mobility for this country. And it's also not about, look, if, we're gonna, if you're going to lose that car, we'll replace it with a new car. It's, we've got to start thinking differently because mobility is a service um, we've got car share programs starting in New Zealand. We need to make them successful and tell people why it might be better to use a, a, a mobility service like that than tying money up in a depreciating asset. So it's just, just what do you mean by a mobility service? Just explain that. Um, okay, so you've got the car share programs, you've got e-scooters, e-bikes. There's all sorts, and you've got public transport. I mean, it's all part of what I would call a total mobility system. Um, mm. And each has to play its part. Um, we get duplication and triplication a little bit because um, we tend to decide that we're going to use our car every day to do whatever it is we've got to do, whereas yeah. we could possibly use a little scooter, as many people are doing down the bottom mm. of a town, mm. or um, decide to uh, pick up a um, either a rental car or one of these car share programs because, I mean, every few um, months, you read about a new building that's going to be built and it won't have any car parks. There are already people living in the city that work in the city that don't have a car park, but they still need wheels occasionally to do something. So they're finding alternatives. And we've got to sort of, but no one really knows all about this stuff. It's the best kept secret in the world. And then the bottom <laughs> line that under, underpins it all is that if you can turn this into electric vehicles, New Zealand's got such a great renewable energy story um, where generations that have come before you and I have paid taxes to build wind farms or dams mm. or whatever it might be to create all this um, this asset for New Zealand, but we don't really use it for transport. You'd have to say, well, why not? The, so you're talking about a shift in some behaviours and a shift in mindset. Major. Does there need to be a, a, a policy shift in the way, uh, and let's let's talk about the fee-bait scheme, which was tried to be introduced last year, um, and mm. just we'll do a quick sort of 30-second summary of what, how I understood it, but it was a tariff on high-emission vehicles coming into New Zealand, and that tariff would then subsidise low-emission vehicles coming into New Zealand. It seemed like a, a, 
a logical scheme. It had been tried elsewhere in the world. Actually had support from the uh, motor vehicle importers um, industry, but it failed. Uh, and the Nats opposed it. Uh, New Zealand First opposed it. Do you think a policy like that needs to be re-put, uh, you know, re- uh, put back on the table, or do you have an alternative for uh, some sort of public policy setting change? Yeah, there's a lot um, that could be done. I mean, th- those are two examples, fee baits, emissions, and things like that. I think the clean car one, it did take quite a while to get the industry support. Vincent, straight off the the bat, it wasn't particularly, um, it wasn't a particularly good policy. And, and Drive Electric, we'd, we'd sort of champion the Swedish bonus mala system, which is just a straight fee bait system. Um, but it requires a lot more work. And I think the starting point, um, we think, is that there should be free emissions testing for everybody as of now. So they learn mm-hmm. about whether their car is clean or dirty. Uh, if it's dirty, then you're on notice that there's going to come a point in time where you're going to have to do something about that. Um, and you start the education process and take people on the journey because it is um, this is transformational. It's not just a transactional, we'll do this tomorrow. This is major, yeah. and therefore you need to take people um, on the journey. Um, yeah, we're one of the few, I think we're possibly the only, uh, maybe Australia, I'm not sure, OECD country that doesn't have any emissions profile. Um, that we're working towards, other than we state we want to be zero carbon. Great mm. ambitious statement, but you've got to actually do some stuff. Um, and that's <laughs> a missing, missing piece at the moment. There's not, not enough being um, done. And look, you know, I remember going way back um, in the last Labor government where they had, uh, they were uh, regulating for an emissions program that would have come in by 2015 to achieve 170 grams of CO2 per kilometre um, was the target at that time. The new fleet, I don't know about the used cars coming in, but the new fleet only achieved that last year. So right. we're getting further and further behind yeah. with the ability, even though you've got all this new technology. Um, but part of the problem is that, again, because of perverse, um, uh, I guess, opportunities, um, you've got, and we, we've talked, as, again, as Drive Electric, about having um, some fringe benefit tax relief for, you know, using the example that a Toyota Corolla and a Renault Zoe about the same size motor car just so happens that the Zoe's twice the price. So maybe you charge the FBT on the outgoing car rather than the, the Zoe at the higher price, because otherwise that's just windfall income for the government. Too hard. And they said, oh, we can't play with FBT. We don't want to touch it. Well, mm-hmm. hello, you've got all these years where, you know, at the top of town, suits driving around and them, calling them company cars and not having to pay any FBT. Yeah. Again, it's, it's, it's just a mess. So, again, the conversation has to be drawing all these things in and coming up with a solution which is going to get us to where we need to be which is, what do you have to do to get 250,000 EVs by 2025? Well, you're going to start penalising gas guzzlers. Some people will be probably quite happy to pay the higher registration or whatever it is. Um, Others would say, that's fantastic. I can save a bit because I'm getting subsidised to get into that um, new low-emission vehicle. And Mm -hmm. and just to be um, clear, uh, Vincent, we're sort of agnostic as to whether that's electric or a fossil 
generating very, very good fuel efficiency and fuel economies, um, be it hydrogen, another one. Um, these are all things that you've got to put into the mix because we're technology takers. We can't define what it's going to look like. But, but we, we can to... define the outcome is, the, is what you're saying. Yeah, we, we, we need true. to set standards and incentivise yeah. people towards those standards. I'll tell you who has done it well, at least on a... Uh, on an outputs level is Norway, right? So they are looking yeah. now nearly uh, nearly fifty six percent of their fleet is EVs. Yeah. Uh, how have they done that? Have you looked at the Norwegian approach? Yeah, we, we've had um, Christina Boo, who runs the Norwegian EV Association, um, into New Zealand twice, and we've paraded her in front of the political parties. We've put her on the TV shows, and she's just adamant. You. You incentivise what you do want and you disincentivise what you don't want. Pretty simple. Um, and that's where I think with the fee bait thing, the clean car thing, it all got too complex. We're just trying to too much, do too much too quickly. Whereas it might have been a little bit easier just to say, okay, here's the plan, let's roll it out. And that's why I think, you know, there has to be a meeting of all the stakeholders around this because it's going to affect every man, every company in this country. It's almost like, I mean, the thing I related to is that it was in the um, late 80s, early 90s that CKD assembly was abolished in New Zealand. It all just packed its tent. It was quite a well-managed process. I wouldn't say it was perfect, but there was an industry plan. We need something similar, a plan, to be able to achieve what it is the government signed up for um, because we can't wait to 2049 to get to zero emissions by 2050. Mm. It's pretty clear. Mm. The um, perverse thing that could happen, and I think you hinted at it before, is that if we don't take deliberate steps, we may end up being a second-hand market for unwanted petrol and diesel cars, right, from left-hand drive nations, because right. those nations, Japan, Australia, uh, the UK, are moving in a deliberate fashion towards a low emissions future. Tell us about, you know, how does that work? Well, look, I mean, the, the the used car phenomena came about at the time when I just mentioned that um, CKD assembly was being abolished and, and there was this, you know, perception, perhaps quite rightly, I don't know, um, that cars in New Zealand were too expensive. So by importing uh, late model, low mileage, supposedly, and in those days you could probably pick whatever mileage you wanted on the cars. It was a bit bizarre. Um, but th those vehicles uh, started coming into New Zealand. The The problem with it now is that, um, and, and look, the industry and the used car guys have agreed to disagree, sometimes agree to agree, um, but the new car sector always said, well, look, we need to have a rolling age ban on these, so otherwise we, the fleet is just going to get older and older. And that's mm -hmm. what's happened. You know, New Zealand has one of the oldest fleets in the world, certainly for an OECD um, recognised country would be well and true the oldest. Um, and also we've probably got one of the most unsafe fleets and I just find it extremely bizarre that you watch television ads from the transport agency advising people what not to buy. Well, take them off the road. If, it, if they're unsafe, why do you want to advertise they're unsafe? Take them <laughs> off the road. Um, so we're going to do some stuff, you know, and, and that's the sort of um, thing that we're um, talking about. But used cars will continue to flow in, and I'm not sort of suggesting that we need to necessarily stop that because I'm not suggesting, like if Boris Johnson says 2032, this is what they're going to do, that that has to be right for New Zealand. 
But mm-hmm. somewhere down the line, we're going to have to follow that. Um, but we need to get a younger fleet. We need to get a safer fleet and, a, and, a, and, a, and to help decarbonize the low emission fleet. And all those things can actually work together by modernizing the fleet. And also, as I say, by not necessarily replacing one dirty car out, one clean car in, because there are other solutions. I mean, most of these car share programs are running electric vehicles or very, very low emission little Volt V-Dub Polos or something. You know, they're, they're doing their bit. We need to mm, encourage mm. and support it. Last week, I interviewed Andrew Clennett, who is um, with Herringer Energy, is building, he hopes, a hydrogen fleet of trucks and long-haul vehicles. Do you have a point of view on the validity of hydrogen as an alternative? Yeah. Um, As I said earlier, we're we're sort of agnostic as to fuel type. Um, And I think definitely, um, and and I think the thing to recognise too is that Japan seem to have a, a propensity to want to go that route for their car, for their light fleet, not so much the heavy fleet, but probably both. Um, whether that plays out, who knows? Um, but that's one of the interesting dynamics at the moment. You've got Japan talking more hydrogen and Europe talking battery electric. So, you know, whether the planets align or there's going to be a collision somewhere, time will tell. Um, but I think for heavy payload vehicles, be it buses, be it trucks, uh, potentially trains too, I suppose. Um, you know, there's a role for hydrogen. Um, it's, I guess, the ability to um, to make it in, in, in affordable batches to get the, the price right because all the charts that I've seen, um, to start to make hydrogen, you start with electricity. Mm. And if you start with electricity, you add more and more process to it. It can't be as cheap as electricity anymore. <laughs> it's simple economics of me. But it does have a role, as I say, for payload vehicles where you just can't keep adding more and more batteries to make them go the distance. The the, the hydrogen fuel cell is perfect for trucks mm. and buses. Mm. Absolutely. And if we've got competency in making it and we can do it commercially, let's do it. I want to um, talk about your journey to reach this, uh, where you are now, because... It's been a long time since we've met, Mark, but I, I suspect that the last time we met, we were speeding around Pukekohe Racetrack in one of your lovely new, um, or what would have been in those days, probably a five series that you were importing, um, bringing in. And um, how did you, so tell us about how you've landed now with Drive Electric um, from your days at BMW. Well, I, um, I I spent nearly 25 years at the BMW Group and sort of up stumps and retired from the company in 2012. And uh, after that, I was sort of twiddling my thumbs a little bit. And there was a guy called Rob McEwen, um, and Drive Electric was formerly known as the Association for the Promotion of Electric Vehicles. Bit of a mouthful. <laughs> um, and well, that's uh, the first thing you did was yeah, get, change them, get the them a better name, shorten it up. Um, but it. It's been, um, we've been really fortunate that we've, this, this organisation was started by the Fukutaki family, Japanese family who are quite big investors in New Zealand. They also have the APF Association for Promotion of EVs in Japan and they have one in Germany. Um, and Rob, um, obviously since I didn't have enough to do, um, bailed me up for a coffee and said we'd like you to um, join the board. So I met the board, and the board comprised at that stage Hideaki Fukutaki, Duncan um, 
Stewart, ex-Pure Advantage, um, and uh, who else was there? There was one or two others. Oh, and Rob. Um, and it was, it seemed to have a lot of capability and a lot of opportunity, but it possibly just wasn't uh, funded right, structured right, and, and, and. And so Duncan and I sort of took the strategic uh, piece um, and we pulled together what it is now. We've evolved a little bit um, since then where it was only three or four, but now it's 12. And the reason it's 12 is because we don't really employ anybody to do anything. We work with our members. The members do most of the work. Um, and the, the board represents the convergence from you know, car companies through to electricity, wholesalers, retailers, um, uh, generators, um, uh, charging infrastructure, business, anything that sort of fits in that continuum of, you know, electricity there, cars there, anything in between, we sort of uh, cover it. And we've also extended it to uh, bring in uh, the truck side. We've been working with Liz Yeoman, who's uh, very knowledgeable on the, on the heavy transport side. She's ex-ECA. Um, and she's also very much involved in these e-ferries that are being built down in Wellington. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got James Munro from Electrify, the e-bikes, bicycles. So, again, we're trying to sort of provide, um, the, I guess, an e-mobility face, uh, or low-carbon face to, um, to government and others, and we're happy to argue, argue that. So, um, but, yeah, so my involvement was, you know, purely probably curiosity to begin with. Um, but as, as I learned more about the other best-kept secret in the country, which is our renewable energy, um, and I remember talking to Fraser Winneray once, and he said, look, we've got to get this cranked up because we've got all these um, permits to increase um, more uh, generating power, but we don't have enough demand in the system. Mm, mm. Well, that's probably going to change when TY... Um, you know, they'll probably never ever get those extra places built. But we've got such a great story. And, you know, and it's also just not about um, getting low, you know, zero carbon. We just think that the wider economic benefits of of um, cleaner air, better health outcomes, less crude oil, and the emissions you save from making fuel and shipping it around the, the country, um there's six to eight billion of crude annually or thereabouts coming in, you know, as the value. What could the government do under COVID with an extra six to eight billion right now? So mm. it's a natural asset, but we no one really knows about it. No one talks about it except those that are sort of in that sector. And it's a real opportunity for us to really explore it and explode it. At your time at BMW, did you you were obviously aware of the transition, you're aware of climate change, you're aware of the need for, for the transition. Did you feel like the organisation was dragging its feet towards uh, a, an electric future for vehicles or, or some sort of alternative? I know BMW was always very suspicious of hybrids and wanted to, uh, the way that I remember them describing it, uh, kind of leapfrog hybrids into a pure electric or, or pure hydrogen. Yeah, look, I think they've always had a weather eye to what, what's what's going to happen. I think as a as a company, they were very, very, you know, sustainability was at the core of the, the company. But the I guess the promise of the ultimate driving machine um, had to sort of be seen in the products that they're producing. 
And so it was always, well, how can we make a hydrogen car or electric car to be the ultimate driving machine? And then, of course, now everyone knows that, you know, you see Teslas racing Ferraris and Porsches and whipping them big time because the the performance aspect of electric cars, you know, 100% torque from the time you touch the accelerator, more or less. Um, but they've always had sustainability at, at their heart and I think have won many, many sustainability awards in um, production where I know there was one plant that was taking water from a river, using it through the plant and then it fed back into the river and the water going back into the river was cleaner than what stuff was coming out of the river. So they, they're responsible. We always have a very, very strong responsibility, sustainability report. And as I say, they, they've sort of led the industry in many of those ways. I think the big issue for a lot of the car companies, and you can see it now where um, because of the European Union's rules, um, I think a lot of them may have thought, well, it won't come to what it has come to. Oh, they'll back off or something. But the EU now, I mean, it was not that long ago that the rules were 130 grams of CO2 per kilometre. That was to the end of last year. Um, and New Zealand, as I said, at the end of last year got to 170. So we're miles away from what they're doing in other parts of the world. And that dropped to 95 grams on the 1st of January this year. Over the next few years, it'll drop right down to 75. There's no way you can do that with a fossil fuel engine. So... Mm. Unless they want to keep paying the fines, and again, as I said before, I don't think any car company wants to pass the, the buck on to their shareholders, saying lower profits, or to the customer, you've got to pay higher prices because it leads to distortions in the in the marketplace. So they have to do their damnedest, and you can see now a lot of like Volkswagen, Porsche, we're going electric, statements made. And mm. also, um, ultimately, it, th- there's a crossover. I think Bloomberg and, and others have you know, are really talking about the, the, the pain point of, of pricing is will we'll disappear in the next two to three years. It won't won't be an issue, the issue that it is today. And then, then you're on the way. Then it's then you're sailing. Then you just gotta worry about have you got sufficient infrastructure to make sure people can charge where and when they need to. And that's the work on. I mean there's guys like ChargeNet investing huge money in putting up big powerful charging um, infrastructure and others, A B B, Vector and, and a lot more too um, but that'll get more and more so I think we're in a um, we're just in a bit of a um, pattern at the moment where um, we're not seeing the models that are coming available because we're not that attractive to the car companies we haven't as a country made it quite clear to them that we want to be in that space um, we mm. can't you know we're not a big volume market so we have to sort of you know, it'd be better if Australia was sort of, you know, a bit more advanced in this stuff too, but they'll get there in the end. But the best one we can tie our, our boat to currently is probably the UK. Mm. Have you found as a result of your journey into electrification, has that changed other aspects of your life and the way you think about sustainability or you think about the future and climate change? Um, yeah, quite substantially. I think most of the boards that I participate on, um, that you know, the topic of sustainability um, comes up, and, and is you know the businesses are excuse me, Vincent. Um, yeah, the business is definitely focusing in on um, on that, and I think it's also trying to say how can you get ahead of the game? What do we have to do to stay ahead of that? In my personal life. Probably not enough, <laughs> um, although I do drive an electric car. 
and have done for some years. Uh, but my wife's still got a little mini that isn't an electric car. But we'll get there. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, I think everyone's sort of probably on the journey, maybe not as, um, as advanced as some, but we, we're not growing our own vegetables or anything like that at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> not quite the good life. I somehow imagine you driving around in an i8. Would that be, would, no, would, would no, that be way off? Way off too, too, yeah. Well, I guess, you know, having spent many, many years not ever having to pay for a car, uh, or any of the running costs of a car, mm-hmm. um, it came as a bit of a shock to suddenly have to buy a car. Um, and so, um, yeah, so it's... it's mean people actually change. spend money on these things? <laughs> yeah. um, but no, I've got a BMW 3 Series, 330E, which the uh, one of the dealers is trying to shoehorn me into something um, something new because I've had it three years. Apparently, that's the time when you went to change, but we'll see. You need to eat your own dog food now, Mark. Yeah. I remember um, going to a, a BMW drive day and um, suffering this thing that, particularly in journalism, it's called income disparity syndrome. So I would rock up in my Jap import, as we've just talked about, and then sort of shamefully walk from the car park and hop in one of your beautiful cars or a beautiful Audi. And that experience of, um, you know, somehow the people I'm associating with professionally are out of my league when it comes to you know, purchasing, but the, the kind of, I find it very interesting that there's this um, merger of aspiration around beautiful cars, high performing cars and sustainability are now not in conflict anymore. Those two things can come together. Yeah. And look, I think that it always probably did, but not to the extent it is today. As I said before, mm-hmm. we were, we, we, I got absolutely spanked because when we made a decision to bring in all these uh, English spec vehicles with efficient dynamic engines, um, which cost, I think it was like another thousand euro per car, uh, and then there was a change of government, Key came in and they abolished all that stuff. So I was still sitting there with a range of vehicles which were costing more than the ones that we could have been bringing in, which meant the profitability in the market drop so you know it's it's, at the end of the day all these companies are shareholder companies and they're looking for the best best return um but in those days it was pretty special what i mean uh, you'd have a vehicle um that would be as fuel efficient as a hybrid um prius or something like that so i guess there's, there's marketing and there's the facts and if you look at the facts um I just think that there's a lot to be um, had with anyone that's um, doing electric vehicles. And I think you've seen too that it's the, you know, when Tesla bought their first model out, it was the top of the range model. It's very expensive. But they needed to be in that space because that's the only way that you can afford to get these things to market. Mm-hmm. Um, help fund the business to be able to then invest in other vehicles further down the, the price ladder. Um, so you always, and that's why the Germans and others in Europe that produce you know, high, high-powered, high-priced vehicles are, um, are starting up there, but it'll eventually penetrate their whole range as it's starting to um, do now. But I think, you know, the, the thing about it too is that a, a battery electric vehicle has about 20 moving parts, whereas your, your normal fossil fuel car, whichever one it is, has got over 2,000. So mm-hmm. economies of scale that are not going to be reflected in the, sticker price, but it'll come in the total cost of ownership down the line. Um, but this is a quite a step change also for people 
who are very transactionally minded. I mean, you always, if you talk to someone, oh, you got a new car, oh, mate, I got a hell of a deal, hell of a deal. Um, but that's on the sticker price. You didn't get a deal on all the other stuff you're going to have to do in the next two to three years. Right. Um, so there's, it's people need to, I think, learn a lot more about what it is an EV can bring for them. Um, and you know, the equipment we've, we've talked about it. It's uh, you know, it's 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 fuel that's delivered to your home. Um, you go to bed at night and you wake up and your car's full in the morning, and it's costing less than forty cents a litre. Can't be too bad. No, it's a miracle. Fantastic. Mark Gilbert, thanks for joining us on the show and uh, and all the best. If people want to get hold of you, how, how do they uh, find out about um, Drive Electric? Yeah, look, just uh, mark at driveelectric.org.nz. Just make sure you've got the two E's, drive and electric, in the email, and we'll be very happy to help you with anything. Um, but also I think it'd be worth just looking at our website. We, we have sent a paper to... Um, the political parties to sort of try and stimulate this discussion um, mm. because it does need to be had and we're very open to talking to anybody about it. Fantastic. And um, thank you for listening. All those who are interested in EVs, we do have a sister podcast called the EV Podcast, funnily enough, uh, part of the Podcast NZ family of podcasts. So visit the website, uh, check out the EV Podcast Mark, thanks for joining us on the show and uh, have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the program. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com or find me on Twitter, vherringer. That's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week. And no hurrah.